You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. And we're back, Christian. So... (laughs) We're recording this the same day as the previous week, but as you can tell, my coffee has kicked in. I am feeling great. Evan's really excited about the fact that I'm just about to run over every word that he has written. (laughs) Um, And yeah, but we're here. We're queer. Nothing's changed. No, no. I'm trying to think. Same shit. (laughs) No. Yeah. Same stuff. Paul and I are just having disagreements. <laughs> We're literally in the middle of a disagreement whenever he decided to push play on this. I but don't know you why. know what? That is how you get the good content. You need to have that, uh, that good. emotion. Uh, good. Good. Glad you got us all riled up. What can't we talk about before? Let's see. Um, I don't know. When is this one dropping? The, this the one 17th? drops on the 17th. Yeah, 17th. So I, I, I have officially started my new job. Um, doing yep. a lot of product training, onboarding, yep. learning how all the departments work, who's who, what's what, and getting acquainted with all the systems and stuff. Um, but yeah, super excited. Yeah. I am doing my same work, but we have launched our hotline for the Vashti Initiative. Oh, I was going to ask you, have you yeah. gotten any calls or anything through that? No, not yet. I mean, no. maybe by, hopefully by the time this launches, mm-hmm. but it's a very... It's a slow launch. We're kind of all word of mouth. We haven't done any big advertising. We're not going to do that till um, July. I That's shared wonderful. it on my meme page. Huh? I oh, shared it on my no, meme no. page. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah, please. You can share it by all means. But we're just like, we're going to do some paid advertising in July. We're going to reach out to a lot of partners. Ask you know what share you should it, do? But we're not. What? Have some, write a bunch of like letters about the number and stuff and then stick it in church books libraries. <laughs> like go to the church library and just put it in a bunch put of books. Put it in there, right? Well, we have a lot of partners where we can get the, the word out. Mm-hmm. But like I said, this is a, the first the first wave is to just like allow ourselves to get adjusted to, um, you know, any mm-hmm. calls that come in, directing people to the resources we want. We're still building our own resource list and just we're doing a lot. But we, we're working hard. So it's one eight three three four vashti Vashti is V-A-S-H-T-I. Um, if you have a religious background, you probably know who Queen Vashti was. Um, but yeah, it, so it's launched. But I have been working with people through email. I actually had a, a gay man reach out to me this week oh, that's and awesome. asked me to put some, together some resources for him. So I did that. So a lot of people have been connecting with us via like message. We have a message app on mm-hmm. our um, website and stuff. But the hotline, I mean, hopefully by the time this airs, people have been calling. But, you know, if you are a victim of religious or spiritual abuse, if you're seeking help if you're recovering from abuse or if you're actively fleeing mm-hmm. you can call one eight three three four vashti and we will put you in touch with someone or we will help you get resources yourself so. yeah and you know what when we build that resources page on the your queer story website we can mm-hmm. do a whole landing page yep. that like at the very top you can click to call and all that and then just have a bunch of resources yeah. so we can get that built out so it's good stuff happening mm-hmm. um 
Also, this episode drops right before the birthday of Audre Lorde, which was one of our early, early episodes, but it's still pretty good. So yeah. you should go back and check it out if you don't mind the horrible sound and um, and probably, I don't know, our, our lack of, of knowledge and experience at that time. Yeah, but, but otherwise, I listened to our Josephine Baker episode to uh, build out a presentation for yeah. Uh, my fiance David for his work and I was like man listen to how bad the audio is <laughs> and I don't know at the time I didn't know it was bad yeah we didn't I know realize. it didn't, was I knew it wasn't great but I didn't know I was like you don't realize the difference yeah. which is sad because Josephine deserves so much better she does deserve better but, but you know the episode was good yeah, yeah it was a good episode we didn't we weren't too wild and we really held to the facts and described her very well so I we did yeah we were doing a good job at that point I feel like actually I think Audre Lord I might be wrong but I think her episode is episode 29 and I think that like it was right around episode 30 that we started to get a little more serious mm -hmm. because we went into your queer story with the idea that it was going to be a comedy right which we were funny but <laughs> at, like you can only study queer history for so long and then get kind of somber about it because right it gets dark you, real yeah quick. you talk about a lot of bad things and and it's you know we only have like good parts of history in the last like 40 years mm -hmm. maybe 50 if you want to count stonewall so it's hard to cover it and and everything be funny and you know you don't obviously don't want to make light of some dark right. situations so um, so our tone really changed around then and we got a lot more serious about the research that we did. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's the evolution of your queer story. <laughs> Anyways, I guess we can just jump into this episode today. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce it because Paul and I are disagreeing on this topic and, um, I'm gonna your dryer again? that's my heater. Oh, so okay. it won't be loud. <clears throat> today we continue recognizing and honoring black writers, their work and their other contributions to American society. This week, we will be covering a man whose words were incredibly influential throughout the 20th century and whose legacy continues to inspire fans and draw ire from critics. But before we begin, we want to add an additional warning, an explanation of some of the terminology we will use during this episode. Everybody, stop what you're doing and pay attention. Listen to us, please, before you go off. We recognize that as two white guys, we must tread carefully. However, it would be impossible to tell the story, the important story ahead, without the use of the word Negro. Like hundreds of other words in our vocabulary, this term has long fallen out of use and is offensive to use today. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Yet during the 19th and most of the 20th century, using the word Negro was actually considered one of the most appropriate and correct terms for black Americans. And because of this, the name was often attached to black-led organizations, newspapers, unions, churches, and literature. Similar to the way the terms invert and later homophile and homosexual were once proudly used to describe LGBTQ plus people. Just as we've seen terminology evolve in our movement, as well as the movement of other people of color, the disabled and women's rights activists, so has it evolved in the black civil rights movement. Though it would be offensive to use the term Negro today to describe any black person, don't ever use it, unless it is hard to avoid the word when reading through and speaking on the past movement of black activists. And we talked a little bit, touched a little bit on this whenever we talked about James Baldwin. If you read anything about Martin Luther King Jr., he uses this word frequently. It really started, it was around 1970 that people finally started to move away from this word. And then it didn't come be, like uh, offensive until about the 90s. So again, it's not appropriate today, but it's like, it's various, it's very much similar to the word like invert or transsexual where it's like, yes, you should not use that word. And you would not hear it in today's language, but when you're reading about previous things, you're going to hear it a lot. And again, it's hard to avoid when the subject of today's episode was named named his most critically acclaimed work, The New Negro. 
So now let us... Now, with this lengthy explanation out of the way, let us dive into the books and literature of author Alain Leroy Locke. Are you happy with it? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Alain was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on September 13th, 1885. His family was descendants of free blacks, a term used to describe African Americans who had either obtained their freedom prior to emancipation or had arrived in the United States as settlers and not slaves. This group was often referred to as the Black Elite, and um, Philadelphia was teeming with activists seeking to continue the fight for equal rights now that slavery was supposedly dead. Locke's position from the beginning gave him a unique outlook on life. His skin forced him to endure and see the extreme racism and hatred in America, yet his relative privilege as the son of wealthy fr- as a as the son of a wealthy freedman, allowed him to envision what his people could accomplish when allowed. Alain could see through the lies and stereotypes being heavily perpetuated against black communities. And there's a lot in this, and Philadelphia was huge, and one day we're going to also cover Philadelphia. I really want to. But uh, it was just, it was such a hub of black activity, even more than, more so than New York at this time. New mm-hmm. York would later, like, by the time the end of his era with the Harlem Renaissance, New York would become a thriving black metropolis. But at this time, Philadelphia was the big place that you could go and, and live as a freedman. That was a term that was used. You might hear things like the Freedmen Bureau. That was all referring to uh, black free individuals. Some, again, who had been freed after slavery, but usually when they were talking about freedmen, they were talking about people that were freed before the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. And, and this like... This idea that you're black and you're not a slave, so you have some privilege, but of course you still experience the racism, and we're not going to give you rights, but we also recognize that you're not slave. It was a very different kind. Mm-hmm. It was very, even more, um, it was even more separate than we see today with wealthy black Americans and, and the average black American. It was a very hard divide. So black elites during this time period were often treated as spectacles by the white population even by the most affirmed supporters and allies. The Reconstruction era following the Civil War illuminated the North's own hypocrisy and bigotry. While abolitionists had advocated for the end of slavery, most quieted down considerably when the question around the black vote came to question. The women's rights movement suddenly abandoned ship from arch supporters of black rights to open racist. So-called well-intended white northerners admitted that slavery was inhumane, but surely black people didn't think they deserved the same rights as the superior whites. Former abolitionists adamant adamantly insisted that whites were just genetically disposed to be more intellectually sound. The few respected black elites were the exception, not the rule, according to white leaders. And this was felt even more intensely in hotbeds of reform such as New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Yeah, and um, Ibram X. Abram actually talks a lot about this in his book, Mm Stamp from the Beginning, where he um, discusses the way that slave traders created this idea that... um, if you are white you have a different genetic ancestry than if you're black like Mm -hmm. they say that every race like native americans asians um african americans or even just africans and you know um europeans each ethnicity kind of came from their own um ancestry is what genetic makeup right yeah their own genetic makeup they were all separate human species is what he tried is what people were uh, made to believe by these slave traders so that they could say, no, you don't understand. They're not a human like you. Mm -hmm. They are a lower species of human. So it's okay that you enslave them. And that's the lie that they told. And you still see that 
ideology affecting us today. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so easy for people to um, look down on people that are not of the same, that are not of white ethnicity, because they were taught to believe that they're less than. And that is still perpetuated by modern society, even though we know that's not true. Well, it's, I mean, that's what gave birth to the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. And then that eventually, of course, gave birth to the Holocaust and as well as slavery and a lot of other things. But um, we'll talk about this a lot more um, in March because we're going to be, you know, studying Women's History Month and mm-hmm. we're going to be studying movements in women's history and the white suffragette movement and this like they were they were all on board with anti-slavery. I mean, that's that's where women got their first platform. Like mm-hmm. they joined like the black community, welcomed them into their ranks. Abolitionists welcomed them and said, here, women, we'll, we'll listen to you. And that was the first time in America, at least, that women really got a foothold and able to stand up and speak their mind. And so they're they're going through with abolitionists fighting against slavery and then slavery ends. And it's like a light switch flicks on like like women like um, uh, Susan B. Anthony suddenly turning around saying horribly racist things because it all comes to the surface of like yeah you'd think that slavery is inhumane but you don't you don't actually see me as an equal to you and it and it it just devolves into this we're just gonna fight for what the white woman's right to vote mm-hmm. and that's what, all that it becomes about and you see that in several of the prominent women who led early women's rights movement who suddenly come out as, as the racist that they were mm-hmm. um, and and so it, um, where was I going with that so th- that's what we saw a lot in the reconstruction era where even the most ardent supporters were like we got what we wanted slavery's ended and y'all should be fine um, don't ask me to be fighting more for right. you don't ask me to, to care that you don't have food don't ask me to care that you don't have uh, a house to live in and that you can't get employed that's not my concern I made sure I of course I made sure that you slavery ended and you should just be grateful to me right. and there was really that attitude like you're so ungrateful because we we freed you and now what, now what you now, want what food else do you too? want you want more <laughs> you want us to make sure that you have basic human rights <laughs> Please, be ridiculous. don't be, that's crazy. <laughs> so decades later, Elaine Locke would com- comment on uh, this dissonance placed upon African Americans. Many often felt that it was better to either ignore the unbridled racism or to seek to attain white approval. Locke wrote, The ordinary man has had, until recently, only a hard choice between the alternatives of, su- of supine, supine. supine and humiliating submission and stimulating but hurtful counter-prejudice. Fortunately, from some inner desperate resourcefulness has recently sprung up the simple expedient of fighting prejudice by mental passive resistance. In other words, by trying to ignore it. For the few, this manna has perhaps, this manna may perhaps be effective, but the masses cannot thrive on it. He, he was a very, um, it's like they, someone said his, his words were not very accessible. He was very brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, as we'll see, he was incredibly brilliant. He was the smartest person in the room. And he wrote like he was the smartest person in the room. He reminds me of that book I have, Black on Both Sides, which is a very good book about black trans history, but very hard to write. And I always get frustrated with that because I'm like, make it accessible to people. But there's, but he inspired a lot of writers who did make their work accessible to people. He just, mm-hmm. that was not him. He was always on a level above other people, which made him arrogant, which made him uh, he had a lot of, there were some issues that he was not, uh, there were some definite issues with Alain Locke, which we'll talk about, but, but he was very brilliant. But I, I still felt like you can catch like 
pieces with that are good. And mm-hmm. this idea of like so long people tried to just ignore the prejudice, but he's like, you can't sustain that. Right. And that was the it truth. works. But how for how long? Exactly. Until you finally spill over and you get raged. Exactly. And of course, Alain was right. Black Americans could not continue to sustain on the crumbs white Americans were tossing to them. How long were they expected to ignore the gross injustices against them? By the time Locke was born in 1885, white leaders had already started to strip away power from black leaders. And by the time Locke was graduating from Harvard University in 1907, southern states had instituted Jim Crow laws and laid the groundwork for a new system of slavery through the policing of black and brown communities and the utilization of the growing prison system. Locke was 21 when he graduated from Harvard, 44 years removed from the Emancipation Proclamation, and 42 years removed from the Civil War. And yet, in 1907, black people did not have access to the polls, rights protecting employment, housing, education, or medical care, and the U.S. would not see another black senator or representative until 1929, and no black person would represent a southern state again until 1969. African Americans and other people of color had been pushed back into the place and were berated and imprisoned whenever they spoke out against the unjust system. And with that, we'll be right back. Hello, Christians. We just want to remind you all that Sojourner House of Rhode Island is offering two important free national services at this time. Any person in the United States who identifies as a victim of domestic violence, sexual assault, and or human trafficking can take part in their free virtual support groups every Monday and Tuesday. It's a healthy and accessible way for victims to find support, especially during this time of uncertainty due to COVID-19. The other service they're offering is a free at-home HIV testing kit. In order to receive yours, you simply have to send in a request to khawkins at sojournerri.org. That's K-H-A-W-K-I-N-S at sojournerri.org and set up a brief consultation. Then a test will be shipped to your home free of charge and you can self-administer and receive results within 20 minutes. After a few days, a Sojourner House representative will contact you just to make sure you have all the resources you need. There's no payments or further stipulations required for anyone receiving this important service. So connect with Sojourner House today and send in your request for support. If you have trouble getting through, then feel free to message Paul and Evan at yourqueerstory at gmail.com or message us on any social media platform at yourqueerstory. back and as we said we're talking about Alain Locke who was a editor a writer uh, an intellectual of the um, the 19th century and um, we did put a disclaimer in the beginning letting people know that we are using outdated and offensive terminology specifically because the title of Alain's most critical work is called The New Negro so it was not very possible for us to cover this topic without using that word but we have used it as a minimum and so just want to clarify that if you do hear that very sparingly, um, that is why we're using that term. But we are going back and talking about Elaine and everything. We we're talking about how in the he was born in 1885. We are in the Reconstruction era, era and then we're coming into the 20th century and all the Jim Crow laws have now put in place. Black people are being pushed back into basically slavery just by another name. And... Yet, despite all of these barriers, Alain became the first black Rhodes Scholar in the United States. 
the most prestigious international postgraduate award available for students and allows them the privilege to study at the University of Oxford. It would be 55 years before another black American was given this award. There are 39 colleges across England that are where member there are 39 colleges across England that are members of the University of Oxford and most are aligned with the prestigious network when Locke went overseas to study in 1908. However, only one unit, Hetford College, accepted the black student. So he had the scholarship, but when he went overseas, all these colleges kept saying, no, he can't be here. In fact, other white American Rhodes Scholars were telling the colleges, we will not come here if you let a black man come. So, um, Hetford College accepted him, and two years later, Elaine transferred to the University of Berlin and studied philosophy. Berlin was entering its gold age of queer life during this period, and we wonder if this was when Locke had his first awakening to his LGBTQ identity. Whether it was then or earlier in his life, Elaine Locke would openly yet cautiously acknowledge he was a gay man. Um, we do know that he had quite a lot of fun in Berlin, but um, I don't know if he knew before then he was gay. Again, he's very smart, very evolved. I'm sure probably from a young age, he probably knew something was different different about him mm -hmm. but um he certainly was able to enjoy berlin during its golden era and i think i just want to note here that i it's so interesting the spectrum of queer identity and self-acknowledgement of identifying that way mm -hmm. because i hear so many people they're like you know i was confused i didn't know i just thought i was a little different and then there's people like me who like i knew from like four years old that i was gay there was no question. I knew I was always, and I, I like, obviously at four, I wasn't like sexually attracted to men mm -hmm. or anything like that, but I just knew that I didn't like girls. If I, like, I don't know how I knew, but I mean, I mean, my youngest memory is of me. I had to have been no more than five or six in my mom's shoes. And I had her put a big shirt on me, like a dress. And she put me in makeup cause I asked her to, yeah. I've always known. So I think it's always so interesting when I hear other people's stories about like, no, I married a woman. I had children. I didn't know. Like yeah. it, it's that weird. That's, I don't know. That's how you have to know that it's such a natural thing that people yeah. just don't, that, I, I don't know how to explain it any better. No, I know. I agree. I mean, for me, I didn't have the vocabulary and understanding. So that's why I didn't know. I did know I was attracted to girls at 14. I remember very clearly when that, that like it finally crystallized, like, mm -hmm. oh, that's what that is. I know, looking back on my life, how many times I felt out of place with my body. But again, not having the vocabulary, I just didn't understand what was wrong with me, why I couldn't get it. Well, that, I guess that also makes fair the point that I had an accepting environment where my mom yeah. was like, okay, you want me to put makeup on you? Sure, I'll fucking put makeup on you. It'll be fun. Yeah. Like, had I not had that, would I maybe have not mm. known? Or maybe would I have been like, maybe I, I'm not that? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think... Maybe just having that environment is what a lot of people are unfortunate enough not to have. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. That's the importance of information and coming out mm -hmm. because when you do put words, like I remember I was, I, I was 20, I, like I, I think I've told this before, but I had been out for not even a year. I started dating in it or not dating, but I was casually seeing an individual who came out to me as transgender and I that's when I had always thought the trans people were just locked in asylum somewhere. I didn't think that was a real thing that people did. And this person explained a little to me. And I remember in that moment being like, Oh shit, you got the label wrong. But 
like for myself being like you you thought this is what who you were and this mm -hmm. is really who you were but i was like i i just did a year of this coming out i'm not doing this shit again i'll be fine and you know i put it off for seven more years so when we come out when we make the, this information available to people they can figure these things out earlier and that helps them a lot more in life mm -hmm. not only because they can adjust and, and be open when they're young but also their families can adjust and be open mm -hmm. and it's not all about that but i do think it's a lot easier when your kid's been telling you since they were four that they're gay or they're trans right. than it is whenever you know they're 30 and they're married and all of a sudden they're like by the way right you know it, it's it just helps people all around mm -hmm. so elaine eventually earned his phd at the age of 33 and stepped into the role as the chair of the department of philosophy at howard university the DEC Institute is a historically black college and has been around since the end of the Civil War. In fact, in its first five years, more than 150,000 freed slaves attended um, Howard to gain a higher education. Over the last century and a half, the university has only grown in esteem and notoriety as part of and part of that is due to the influence of Elaine and his influence on the on the shift in black culture in America. In fact, Locke is, Locke is often referred to as the Dean of the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. It is his writing and his perspective that pushed many African-Americans to stop seeking a white acceptance for equality and instead realizing they were always worthy of equality and certainly didn't need the approval of a corrupt race that enslaved them. Yeah, and again, we, we're going to talk about this more and elaborate, but like the, there was this idea, you know, it, it, for, for, for a long time, and it was, it was ingrained in people of like the uplift suasion, the idea of if you can attain whiteness, and in fact, and, and that means like you attain what white culture looks like and their mannerisms and their speech and their dress. And if you act like that, then you are a worthy black person. But if you don't act like that, then you are unworthy and you cannot be equal. And until you can obtain that, we're not going to pay you any mind because you don't deserve it. Right. And then, and again, it degrades the idea of white is superior. How we act, how we dress is superior to you. Mm -hmm. And, and it wasn't, and there were a lot of people that pushed folks to that, that pushed black people to obtain that and saying, look, come on guys, let's do it. Let's, let's show them that we're civilized. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it projected this idea that civilized means white. And that's right. not what civilized means. No. And actually I recently, um, I was watching this show on Netflix called Bling Empire. I don't know if you've seen that. No. It is, um, it's kind of like Crazy Rich Asians. It's these like millionaire and billionaire Asians and it's following their life. And a lot of them talk about like their Asian parents um, and how um, like their culture is and how they, you know, like the moms want uh, the daughters to have a male heir and things like that. And it sounded so foreign to me. I was like, well, that's not right. That, you know, these people should be able to do whatever they want. And then I was like, wait, that's just whiteness. Yeah. Like, that's just me comparing their culture to white culture. And it really clicked for me in that moment where I was like, whiteness doesn't mean rightness. Yeah. There <laughs> oh, go. there we go. Whiteness doesn't mean <laughs> rightness. That is coined a term. But, um, it was very eye-opening to me in that moment um, that some of my beliefs may have been based solely on my white liberal ideals and other cultures and other people have their own ideals. And I it, I don't know, it was just a very eye-opening moment for me where I kind of put everything together and I was like, holy shit, I get it now. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it's, it's what brings you happiness, fulfillment, and doesn't take away from another person's happiness and fulfillment. Exactly. So like if your child really doesn't want to follow in your steps and you reject them, you make their lives miserable, then I think that that's wrong. 
But if your child wants to follow in those cultures and they find they find honor and they find dignity or they maybe they adapt some things for themselves but they keep a lot of it, then again, if they're happy, if they're fulfilled and the people around them are happy and fulfilled, then that is right. Yep. It's only whenever we start to force ourselves on other people that we that that's when it becomes a problem regardless of what it is. Exactly. So for the most of history, Elaine Locke was forgotten or only quickly mentioned in passing as a footnote to everyone and everything else. Even the definitive history stamped from the beginning by noted historian Ibram X. Kendi only mentions Locke a handful of times. And part of this could probably be traced to Elaine's own arrogance and eccentricity. His power and words drew people in, but his odd manners and ego quickly pushed them away, as well as some predatory behavior, which we'll address in a little bit. His, um, it is fair to say that he was had different taste. When his mother died, rather than laying her out in a casket, he propped her up on the sofa so she could engage with her funeral guests. <laughs> Once that, I, I'm just gonna interject to say that's. I'm sorry, we just talked about you doing you, but that is weird as hell. I'm. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, that is. There's a lines, <laughs> like much to the dismay of his funeral guests. Can you imagine walking in for a week and seeing like, oh shit? You want to sit and take a selfie with with grandma? <laughs> She's right there on the couch. Oh Jesus! Um, I, actually, I've been watching this show, uh, Big Sky, and it's. It's it's pretty good, um, but anyways, there's a there's a oh I don't want to spoil alert if you're watching Big Sky and you're not caught up, so check out for five seconds. Um, but the serial killer does exactly that. He kills his mother, and then he sets her up to sit there, and she just mm-hmm. sits in her chair, the whole Norman Bates thing. Gee, uh, no. <clears throat> one story says that after his own passing away, mourners found a catalog of the semen of all Elaine's former lovers. <laughs> Real interesting. Yeah, um, which they, I guess they promptly destroyed. Was, I don't know. How did he catalog it? Did he? He just had like, little slides of all their their semen. He collected it. That's real weird. That's 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 a little. Ugh. I, I see a serial killer. Did anybody I, do any research? You I'm know just what? gonna. Who knows? Like I, I said, don't want to dishonor this man, but like. Well, I mean, like I said, he's a very he's a complicated man because he contributed a lot to black culture. A lot. But he also um, definitely took advantage of his power. And I always say took advantage, that's to be nicely putting, like he used his power to uh, to get sex. Mm-hmm. Like he used his power, he wielded that over young art, black gay artists. And he, you know, they knew that if they slept with him, that he would take care of them. He would promote their works and they did. And then even after they tried, started to reject them, and he was just a, he was pe- a petulant child about it. You know, like he was, he, he would, I don't know if there's any stories that he pursued someone after they said no, but it was definitely obvious that he abused his power mm-hmm. for even artists such as Langston Hughes, which was a big black artist of the, um, the Harlem Renaissance. So, and I mean, just collecting a someone's semen and, and, I don't know. It shows a behavior that's not not well. Yeah. Um, but anyways, the lock was 4'11", dressed like a gentleman dandy, and was always smarter than everyone else in the room. And worse, he was unapologetically queer. No doubt these traits were why so many attempted to downplay or even erase his large contributions to history. Mm-hmm. In 1925, Alain released his most critical work, the new N.E.G.I.R.O. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> 
It was the same year he was fired from Howard University for attempting to gain equal pay for black and white educators and came at a crucial point in American history. The Great Migration is a 50 plus year movement of black Americans into Northern and Western states. There's often a misconception that slaves immediately fled their prisons in the South after the Civil War. But the reality is these prisons were also their homes. This was where their families and communities were settled and traveling through the South to get somewhere else was a dangerous journey especially in the years immediately after the Civil War. For a good while, most black people settled near their old plant plantations and built small towns and even a few thriving cities. But as Jim Crow laws uh, increased in severity and the final ruling set in place in the early 1900s, black life, beca black life became an unbearable as unbearable as it was in the past. So folks took a risk and headed out of the very lands that they had tilled and the homes they had built and searched for freedom that wasn't a myth. Yeah, and just remember, like, I mean, when this idea that people should just leave, which is basically what the South expected. They're like, mm -hmm. all right, you're free. We can't enslave you anymore, but you better get out. Right. And it's like, where the fuck are we supposed to go? Right. We literally have no money. Where you literally just captured us and didn't pay us. But also, like, there is a pride, even if you're forced to do it. Like, I planted these fields, mm -hmm. I built that house, I did this. You know, you're taking credit for all my work, but I did it. And right. now you're just going to tell me to get the fuck out? Well, fuck you. You right. know, I'm yeah. not doing that. Like, and again, these are their communities. They're supposed to, if you were like, you're in deep Louisiana and you're trying to get up to Pennsylvania, that's a very dangerous journey. You're most likely going to be killed along the way if yep. you're a black person and you're just going to leave all your family and community behind and go up there. No, it's, you to know, what? what are you going up there to even exactly like with some hope that maybe like you don't even know if that freedom up there is real. That's what right. people talk about. But who knows? Because, you know, they told you that you were free after the Civil War. and That wasn't true. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. <clears throat> Locke's book came about a decade into the migration as families were starting to settle in these new areas. The New Negro is an anthology of fiction, poetry, and essays and was compiled and edited by Alain. It carries a total of seven authors, including Alain, and celebrates a wide spectrum of black culture. Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Conti Cullen, Aaron Walrund, Claude McKay, and Jean Toomer all contributed to the pieces in the book. They were all well-known and respected writers in their time, but Alain's book is what really launched many of their careers. The book was an instant success in the Encyclopedia of Race, Ethnicity, and Society, attributed as the first national book on African America. And while there had been a few books on Black history by this time, Locke's book was one of the most one of the first to openly celebrate Black culture. Rather than demand his fellows step up the white man's demands or pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, he ins instead took pride in Black accomplishment. This was not a common sentiment of the day, even among Afri many African Americans. 250 years of slavery with an additional 50 plus years of Jim Crow laws had, con had conditioned most black Americans to see themselves as secondary citizens. Alain was often criticized because he was not an activist. In fact, he was quite annoyed with the radicals of his time. And they were equally annoyed with his refusal to take up their cause. Yet Locke understood that many did not, which was, yet Locke understood what many did not, which was that in order for the black individual to fight for equality, they must first see themselves as equal. And it was just so important because that's exactly what it is. Like the, you had the activists, like, you know, of course, Frederick Douglass, uh, W.E. Du Bois, you had these activists, even Langston Hughes, you know, fighting for black equality. And they couldn't, they were frustrated because they couldn't get a lot of black Americans behind them. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that many have just been conditioned to believe like, look, it's just better. Let's just, you know, be calm. Let's be quiet. Keep our head down. Not all, certainly, but many had. Mm -hmm. And what, what 
Locke did without even being an activist himself was say, hey, here's your culture. You have a lot to be proud of. Like he made them see what they were, they should be proud of. Right. By by reading their poetry, by being their, reading their words, by reading their own history, he made them wake up and be like, oh yeah, we we do like you know we don't need the white man's permission or acceptance. Right. And Alain's work helped to show the black masses that they had already contributed so much to America. He wrote in the foreword, "It must be increasingly recognized that." The black person has already made... I'm Now I'm correcting myself because of Paul. It must be increasingly recognized that we have already made a very substantial contribution, not only in uh, folk art, music especially, but has always been found appreciation, but in larger, though humbler and less acknowledged ways. For generations, the black man has been the peasant matrix of that section of America which has most undervalued him, and here he has contributed not only material and labor and in social patience, but spiritually as well. The South has unconsciously absorbed the gift of his folk temperament. In less than half a generation, it will be easier to recognize this, but the fact remains that a leaven of humor, sentiment, imagination, and tropic nonchalance has gone into the making the South from a humbled, unacknowledged source. For a black man to lay claim to the South's noted Southern hospitality, while also calling out the unacknowledged labor was a bold move. Yet Alain Locke never seemed to be afraid of anyone or anything, and his words inspired others to feel the same about themselves. Uh, They could see in his writing that he truly believed black people were wonderful and beautiful and valued. This was no preacher raining down condemnation, no writer reprimanding the black community for not trying hard enough. Um, his book celebrated a people who had been devalued and treated as scum for more than 300 years. It showed that the error was not in who they were, but in how they had been portrayed. As Locke wrote, the fiction is that the life of the races is separate and increasingly so. The fact is that they have touched too closely at the unfavorable and too lightly at the favorable levels. It is no wonder that this kind of empowerment would ignite a renaissance. In fact, the period between the 1920s and 1930 is often referred to as the New Negro Movement. A transformation occurred as black Americans stopped trying to achieve white acceptance and instead demanded to be seen as they were. And we do not mean to allude that all blacks were beaten down and subdued. That certainly was not the cause. Every day another black owner opened a business or applied for college or boarded the front car of a train in an attempt to prove their worthiness. But as a whole, black culture and black life was ignored and relegated to the fringes. Now it exploded out in front and the Harlem Renaissance would change America forever, not only for black straight Americans, but for queer individuals and people of color across multiple demographics. For his part, Locke continued to be a guiding voice in the Renaissance and also acquired funding for artists like Hughes Hughes and Hurston. He attempted to obtain approval for a museum of African art and a community center, but both plans fell through. He then took off abroad and traveled the world writing, touring, and seeking some other form of fulfillment in life. In later years, he would condemn those radicals who started and partook in the Harlem riots of 1935 and never could bring himself to become involved in politics. But he advocated tirelessly for black artists and the recognition of the impacts of black culture on society. And this drew many young artists under his wing, a solace for them had he not abused his power and requested or required a relationship. We cannot or would not excuse Locke's abuse. While his thoughts and abilities were admired by many, they were also wielded as a weapon by a man who allowed his intellect to excuse predatory behaviors. And maybe that is also why he has been downplayed in history. I mean, the thing that, as I say, the thing with Locke, so um, it's just, 
Like he he supported black artists or he got funding for black artists when no one else could. Mm-hmm. Hughes lived off of it. Hurston, uh, uh, I forgot. Her, um, Hurston was a, a black female writer. She was not going to get anyone else to support her. Locke made sure that she had the money that she needed. He, like I said, he was the one who was the dean of the Harlem Renaissance, and 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 that's why it's. It's not hard to say that his behavior was predatory. It's just hard to ignore the contribution that he made. Mm-hmm. It's hard to ignore the contribution that he made to black culture, to American culture as a whole, to the world, really, because the Harlem Renaissance sparked a wor- like a worldwide black pride. Um, but you also can't ignore what he did to these artists and how he used them. And then, like I said, was just... Um, so indignant whenever they rejected him and he has spent his own life looking for love wanting to be loved but he I, I think his arrogance and his if we want to call it quirkiness pushed people away and certainly his he had to be dominant in every situation mm-hmm. which was somewhat of a defense mechanism but his drive for dominance I'm sure certain did not help his desire for relationships right um, and also imagine going on a date with him and being like yes and I have a catalog of every man I've ever slept with I have their <laughs> semen in my uh, top drawer of my dresser would you like to see it yeah so definitely like like I said like there was a thing you know and I would say 50% of these men didn't want to sleep with me, but they needed the money at the time. So, so I use it. Yeah. But we see that in gay culture all the time. And we, it is, it is as wrong as any other situation. You, you know, we want to stand up. We want it's to call the same up. thing as Harvey Weinstein. Exactly. We look it at Harvey Weinstein. We look at thing. Catholic priests, anybody who abuses their power to get sex, the same thing. So I don't care who you are. Even it, if you're just running a local drag night. If you're using that to be able to sleep with the young artists and you think that there's no problem with that, you're wrong. If you have some kind of power over another person and you use that or you manipulate that to get get sex out of that person, that is abuse. Of power. That is wrong. So... And and, and and queer history, just like every other history, is littered with individuals like that. And whenever they make a contribution like uh, Alain's book and his editoring, uh, his editorship, I don't know, um, it's hard because, not hard because what they did was right and what he did was absolutely wrong, but we also have to look at this piece of history and, and look at the impact that it did make on American culture. Mm-hmm. Locke passed away in 1954 of congestive heart failure. His legacy continued, and the Harlem Renaissance soon turned into the civil rights movement, which today is shown in the Black Lives Matter movement. 63 years after his death, biographer Jeffrey C. Stewart wrote in a 945-page book, Jesus, on Locke. <laughs> I was gonna see. I was gonna read the biography because I thought I saw it. And I was like, this is perfect. And then I saw that. I was like, I don't have time for that. That I, is a lot of. Pages. I don't want to read 945 pages on any person. I don't. Um, the um, the book was titled The New NEGRO, The Life of Alain Locke. The book has gone on to win the Pulitzer Prize as well as both the National Amer- and American Book Awards. It is one of your recommended resources today, but don't worry. We have other resources just in case you don't want, care to read 945 pages. I can't even imagine that on Audible. That's like two weeks. It's it's um like it's 30 because I looked at it on Audible too. It's 36 hours. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Check out our clip of Jeffrey Stewart discussing Alain Locke's historical impact on black and gay culture or listen to the NPR Code Switch podcast episode on Alain Locke which is available on Spotify and most podcasting platforms probably wherever you're listening to this. Exactly. And 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 that's uh obviously Code Switch is, is run by black 
artist and um, it's it's a really good um, podcast overall. Mm-hmm. And we'll end our episode with this quote from Locke, which inspires us to continue looking ahead. Whatever the general effect, the present generation will have added the motives of self-expression and spiritual development to the old and still unfinished task of making material headway and progress. No one who understandingly faces that situation with its substantial accomplishment or views the new scene with its still more abundant promise can be entirely without hope. And it's just as wordy as he is, but you know what? (laughs) Hope. There we go. One day. (laughs) And with that, stay queer. Don't give a lobotomy. We love you, our little allied hookers. And a little second at Saphis. Resist the oppressors, our proud homocrats. And have yourself a sodomy circus, but don't collect people's semen. Or don't. (laughs) And Black Lives Matter. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.